0: So, it's, um, it's Matzah Yom Kippur, and it's been a week, and it was one of the longest, if not the longest, the Yosemite Tshuva that I ever had. Um, I vividly remember that Rosh Hashanah, and I vividly remember the day after Rosh Hashanah, um, which is some gedalia and I especially remember 1 o'clock in the morning the night after Dalia, when all hell broke loose. Um, it's not an accident that this happened on Rosh Hashanah. Not from a mystical perspective. Not in terms of how Hashem plans the world. And not because the Arabs uh, who call themselves Palestinians um, planned this on Rosh Hashanah. That was going to be a very difficult year because the energy of that year, the beginning of that year Rosh Hashanah was the beginning of the second intifada. Shootings, uh, bombings uh, stabbings it was a horrible horrible time um, unlike the first intifada when you had people throwing rocks and the occasional Molotov cocktail this time it was a number of years after Oslo um, so there were two hundred thousand guns that were floating around Yudavisham Run and many of them were being brought to bear they were now able guys this is not cool if you want to be in the shi or grave, if you don't want to be in the shi, that's fine, but like... do you guys close the window? Ah, that is cool, actually. <laughs> Literally. Okay, No problem. You remind me later why halachli you're correct. Okay? It's halacha. Call kolim bifnei atzina. Right? Okay? You're supposed to say if you're called. So. So. Um... There were 200,000 guns floating across the territories, shootings, there were actually five residents of the area of Gush Etzion that were murdered on the roads that I drive even now every day. Got very intense very quickly. Um, some of you may remember, we talked about this once. I got a phone call from my battalion commander at like one o'clock in the morning. He said, uh, you have a Tzav Shemone. This is the, the night after Rosh Hashanah, right? And um, uh, I'd never experienced that, you know. Whenever I'd been in a combat situation, I was either in the regular army or was like part of miluim. Here, you're being called up to it. Now, normally when you do reserve duty, they legally have to give you 40 days notice. If you get your reserve duty mail, like late, and it's two weeks for reserve duty, all you have to do is say you didn't get it, and they can't call you to miluim. You have to have a certain amount of time. And the draft notice for reserve duty has all sorts of uh, details, including has to tell you when you're going, where you're going. How long you're in for and you know that you're getting out and they can only call you for a certain number of days However, there is the possibility in an emergency situation that they can call up troops There's a special subcommittee in the Knesset that meets they can sign this order. It's called the Tzav Shemone, right? right? Uh, order number eight and they can draft you at a moment's notice Right and that's it So he said Goyasnu we've been drafted. I'd never heard of this before. I never had this before. I wasn't around for the yom kippur war So I said, well, wh- how long are we going to be in for? So he said, I don't know. I said, well, when do we have to show up? He said, now. And it was one o'clock in the morning. If you have a job, you know, you're planning on taking your kids to school the next morning, you haven't made their sandwiches, and all of a sudden, you gotta get all your army gear together, run out of the house, and show up wherever you have to show up. Uh, by three o'clock in the morning, 97% of my unit was already sort of drafted, and by four o'clock in the morning, we were already on patrol. The, the shock of going from a normal evening to that, was intense. The worst part of it was, was that our kav was opposite Beit Lechem, right? The edge of Efrat, which meant that the reserve duty that I was doing was five, ten minutes from my house. So that meant it was a bizarre war. First of all, I didn't expect to be a war. I thought, okay, you know, they want to protect the areas. They're going to have us do patrols. Next thing you know, you're in gun battles, calling in helicopter gunships. It was crazy. But the craziest part of it was, you'd be in a gun battle in the morning down by Al Chader. And then at night you'd get home for a few hours to like tuck your kids to sleep and do some email. And then you go out again and do some more war. It was crazy. Now you would think at the beginning I thought, okay, this is great, I get to sleep at home when I want to. It turns out it was horrible. Because normally when you go to reserve duty, your family doesn't really know what you're doing. And they, you know, your wife, you talk to your wife whenever we didn't have cell phones back then, you talk to your wife and or maybe we did, I don't remember. You talk to your wife and and she says, How are you doing? You say, Everything's fine. You can't really say everything's fine when she's been hearing the gunshot's 10 minutes north, and she saw you in the middle of a pula, and then you have to call in a helicopter which is hovering over our house while it's firing missiles. into. So it was horrible. And the worst of it was Matzah Yom Kippur. Mm. Now, we didn't know that this is going to be, you know, a war. We didn't know this is going to last a couple years. We thought, you know, it'll be like a few days and things will calm down. Um, and Bemet, after a few days, things seemed to calm down. And, and this wasn't the first time Israel had experienced this. Those of you who ever heard of the tunnel riots in 1996, it was a similar story. They opened up the Kotel tunnels. All hell broke loose. Arafat claimed we were trying to take over the Temple Mount. There were riots and everything else. And then after a week, it calmed down. It was a terrible week. There were 13 Israeli soldiers killed and whatever. But okay, it was a week. So this is uh, Yom Kippur. Now, when we got to Yom Kippur, we were still drafted. And I didn't know what to do because I'm the Bal Musaf, right? And I'm davening for the Ammud. But I've got all my gear. I've got my radios and my cell phones and, and everything else that, you know, there's like a special kind of thing called a mirrors. It's like a phone walkie-talkie that you had in the army. I'm going to walk up to the duchan in Shul on Yom Kippur with my phones in uniform, but there wasn't anybody else to have musaf. Like, you can't ask somebody to switch you for musaf on Yom Kippur. It takes practice. So we didn't know what to do. So Bimikura, one of the guys in the unit, Danny, was a sergeant in my unit. He was also in shul. So he came over to me and he said, look, I'll tell you what. You give me all your stuff. And if the radio goes off and they call you, then I'll come over. We'll have to figure out a way to switch you. And if it doesn't, you won't have to worry about listening to the radio while you're the Musa." I said, okay, great idea, right? So he took my phones and my mirrors and my walkie-talkie and whatever. And I put the kittle on literally over my army uniform, right, with my gun next to me on the floor. Bizarre. And nothing happened that entire day. Right, all the normal banter on the radio. everybody's understood it's Yom Kipper. We're not going to talk unless we need to. Nothing happened. Not a shooting. Not a someone in distress. Nothing. And I figured, okay, it's over. Now I, you know, I wasn't listening to the radio. I hadn't heard the news. I figured it's over. You know, things calm down. And I'm getting excited. We're sitting with Yom Kipper. We come home. My wife made dinner. I'm a little in the middle of a bagel with cream cheese, saying like, "Okay, Bezrat Hashem, tomorrow. Like, I'm sure, like this week, they'll let us out." All my radios go off. Right, there was a shooting, we had to run out, and I didn't anticipate that my kids, was, I never had that before. Like, it's a habit, you know, you, you, it's an, it's a, it's a, you're you—it's a—it's trained, you grab your gear, you run out, you jump in your Jeep, and you go off to wherever you're being called. I never did that when I was sitting at the table with my children. I didn't have time to think about it. And you know, a minute later, I'm gone, and my kids and my wife and a couple of guests are sitting there, and they don't quite know what to do. I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly how they reacted. And about five minutes later, like, they start to hear a shooting and they have no idea where I am and they don't know if I'm there, etc. It's a horrible, horrible experience. And you see in that experience that you never know. You You just never know how the world can change in a moment. I remember the next night, I finally managed. We were up all night. It's a long story for another time. I finally managed to get back. And I came back and I really felt bad because I had managed to talk to my wife and she said the kids are like beside themselves. So I figured I'll come back with my Jeep, right? And I'll give my kid a ride in the Jeep. He'll be all whatever. Don't know if that was a good idea, but whatever. The next night I get back and I got back just in time to put uh, Jonathan to sleep. Jonathan at the time was uh, seven years old, six and a half, seven years old. And I'm lying down in the bed with him telling him a story. You know, he used to like me to tell him stories. And then, like, it's, you know, 20 minutes. I'm not sure who's putting who to sleep type of thing, whatever, but I got to go. And so he's got his arms around my neck. And I said to him, Yonatan, I got to go. And he won't let me go. And I said, Yonatan, I got to go. And I'm trying, and he won't let me go. And finally he looks at me. I'll never forget this. He says, Abba, tevteich li shalo tamut. Promise me you won't die. How do you answer a question like that? What do you say to a seven-year-old? Who says that to you? I, to this day, I have no idea I answer that question. I actually wrote a song a few days later because I, I couldn't figure out how to answer that question. How do we change the way we look at the world? You know, we take things for granted. How do we grab the moment and see it the way we're supposed to see it? And what is the way we're supposed to see it? So I'll share with you an idea. Because this week's Parsha is... Is, is the thematic response to this question, okay? Vayihi b'shalach parotam. And it was, the word Vayihi, by the way, is always is a problematic word, okay? Um, it always signifies that something bad is coming down the pike. Not necessarily for who it's bad, but somebody's gonna have a bad time. In fact, there's a Hasidic Sherebi, I forget which one it is, I think it's the uh, Shei Mishmuel, the Sakhachever, but I could be wrong who says, al don't say v'aihi, ala v'ai, oi v'ai, right? Okay, the v'aihi is a word of impending tragedy, right? There are 10 famines in Tanakh, beginning with the famine of Avram, vayhi rav ba'aretz. Every time there's a famine, through the time of David Melech, it always starts with the word v'aihi. So whenever you see the word v'aihi, something bad's coming down. So v'aihi b'shalach Paro ataham, paroh sends the Jews out of Egypt, then he changes his mind. He thinks, I'm Paro. He's in for a lot of trouble. He has no idea what he's about to do. Okay? Now, there's an obvious question there. What is the obvious? And it was when Paro sent the Jews out of Egypt. What's the obvious question? Obvious question. Pardon? Bad about that. Well, what's bad about that is he's going to follow them and he's going to lose his army and they're all going to drown. Right? That's pretty bad for him. Right? may not be bad for us, but bad for him. Yeah? Oh, what does it mean, B'Shalach Paro Aham? When Paro sent... Listen, there is no such... I have never seen a really religious newspaper. Do you know why? There are newspapers in the, you know, in the, in the, in the Stark world. Yateid Ne'eman, right? No women's pictures allowed. I don't know. Whatever makes them think they're religious newspapers. Fine. But they're not really religious newspapers. Do you know why? Because if you open up the newspaper, it'll say, right that, uh, I don't know, Rav Kanievsky says that we should open Yeshivoda, or we shouldn't. And then it'll say, you know, uh, 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 President uh, Trump is pulling troops out of Iran. What should it really say? The headline should be Hashem has decided that President Trump is pulling troops out of Ichvesnish, right? Hashem has decided, Rav Kanievsky is going to say like, Hashem decides everything. So what does it mean, paro right? What does it mean that Paro sent the nation? And yet, on the other hand, if you look in the Torah, it does. Moshe goes to Paro. Paro says, I won't let you go. Moshe can't go until Paro says, you can go. Finally, in the middle of the night, Paro says, I want you out of here. Then they can go. Why do we need Paro to send us? This parsha is the parsha that deals with the question of whether we really have free choice. Are the decisions we make really ours? Or are they not ours? Vayi b'shalach paro Hashem says, I want you to know... You are going to be responsible for the things you do. It doesn't matter whether you're doing them really or I'm doing them. You're gonna be responsible for what you do. Clearly, Hashem created the entire world. It was all poised for this exact moment when six children would meet in holy matrimony in Yeshiva Raida. That's that's godlike. You didn't make the children. Hashem made the children, he used you to make the children. But you're responsible for making the children. And, and we are, even though it's all Hashem. How do we find that balance? By the way, so Hashem says, I want you to know Paro sent you out. Paro's going to be responsible for it. He's going to pay the consequence for it. It's his decision. You know, if you didn't get up this morning for Minyan, it must mean that Hashem decided that you weren't meant to get up for Minyan this morning. How do I know that? Because you didn't get up. That's obviously a very dangerous perspective. And yet it's true. If Hashem decides something's going to be, it's going to be. On the other hand, we're responsible. Now, what's the flip side of that? If this is the parsha of, 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 of the idea that we have to choose, right? We have to choose how we see things, we have to be responsible for what we do. On the other hand, if you look at the beginning of the parsha, right? What does it say? Um, find this. So Hashem takes them out of Egypt, okay? So Paro is sending them out, right? But then it says, <speaking in Hebrew> Hashem does not allow them. He doesn't relent and let them go by way of the Philistines. Okay, so what's this? What's this? Water, water no, this is a map of Israel. Okay, right? This is a map of Israel. <laughs> here's the Golan. Okay? Here's the Dead Sea. Right? And here's Mitzrayim. Now, if you get out of Egypt, okay, and you want to get to Israel, which way do you head? You head north, you head up. Which way is Yamsuf from where they got out of Egypt? I know? East. East. It's all the way over here. Why are they going this way? The Torah says, Don't worry, I got you covered. I'm going to explain why we went this way. Hashem doesn't let them go up straight north because then they will run into Derech Eretz Plishtim, the land of the Philistines. The Philistines were a warlike nation. Right, the cities that they populated along the coast. Some, by the way, associate them with the Vikings. We're not going to go there right now, right? They were a warlike tribe. Wherever they came from, they settled the coastal region. They were traders, right, as in with a D. And uh, the city of Ashkelon, that's a Philistine city. The city of Ashdod, Philistine city. F- city of Gat, Philistine city. All in that coastal area. They were, by the way, the ultimate nemesis of the Jewish people all the way through the time of David Melech. Okay? So Hashem says, if they go up that way, what's going to happen? Right? Pen they're going to see war. If they come up that way, the Plishtim are going to see them, and they're going to see war. Right? Pen Mitzrayim. They will relent. They will see war. They'll be afraid. They'll, they're not going to want to do this. And what will they do? They'll go back to Egypt. So Hashem says, I don't want them to go back to Egypt, so I'm not taking them that way. So then who's choosing how the world unfolds? Paro or God? Seems to be a direct conflict here. Who who's responsible for what happens? Us, right? Or a Baruch Hu, right? So if you look through this parsha, you see that this theme continuously repeats itself. I'll give you a couple of examples. One of the major stories, which occupies a lot of circuit in this parsha, is the man. Now why did Hashem give us man? Right? I am going to rain down bread from the heavens. Why am I doing this? The Pesach says, So that I can test the Jewish people, Will they follow my Torah? That's a crazy kind of test. Especially if you buy into the Midrashic understanding of man. I'm going to test you. I'm going to see if you guys are serious. I'm going to rain bread from the heavens. Let's see if you go outside and pick it up. Really? That's a test. You know, we're going to test the barchemer right. Let's see if they're serious. Are they going to show up to eat cholent? <laughs> That's a test. What kind of nutcase does? it... There's even a vegetarian cholent. Like for the few nebuchs, there's a vegetarian cholent. Right? The guten macharevi came through. Right? Okay. So that's not a test. The Medrash says, what, what, what unique phenomenon about the man does the Medrash share with us? That it what? It only lasted one day. Pardon? It only lasted one day. But it's not that it lasted one day, it's you can only pick it for one day. Right? You can only take it for one day. What else about the man do we know? It could, like it could taste like anything you want. That's Midrashic. Right? tastes like whatever you want. Okay? Can you imagine? You're about to eat the bread. Say, I want a cheeseburger. Ooh. Start question, can you have a cheeseburger? Anybody know the halachic answer? Yes, Absolutely. Yes. It's not actual milk and meat, right? Let's say you want the chulant. But you want the chulant right after you had another roll that tastes like milk. Not a problem, it's man. You could eat anything you want. I'm going to test you to see if you're going to do this, if you're going to eat the man. That's ridiculous. What does that mean? So the Rambam and the but right? they're different answers One day it says, you know, that they were halachos. Rashi says this. Rashi says they were special halachot, right, regarding the man. Let's see if I can find the Pesach where he says this. A special halachot. Rashi says, I'm going to give them something, but I'm going to give them halachos. They're going to have boundaries. We're going to see, can they stick with the boundaries? Can they choose not to gather it on Shabbat? Can they choose not to have any leftover for the next morning? And that's a whole deep idea, right? That the real challenge is that, that we want something, but we can't do everything we want. Boundaries, okay. But the Sephardim says something very simple. And the Rambam echoes this in the Mar He says, you know what the test was? It's no big deal to remember that you have to dive into Akash Baruch when the Egyptians are about to smice you at Yamsov, Right? But when man comes down every day, how long does it take before you forget that it's manna? Right? You know, I remember as a kid, I used to think, wouldn't it be awesome if we could have manna? I got a clue for you. We all eat manna every day. Every day. It comes down from heaven. It sits there in front of us. It could be anything we want. Okay? Who here, just raise your hand, who here came to Israel with a credit card? Parents give you a credit card. Do you understand a credit card is mana? Like you go to the, you go to the restaurant and you, it tastes like anything you want. You want to get burgers? Go get burgers. In fact, you don't even have to go to the restaurant anymore. You take this thing that's in your pocket, press a few buttons, and the next thing you know, pizza's delivered. It's mamish mana from heaven. It is. It's mamish mana from heaven. Are you going to remember when the mana comes from heaven that it comes from a credit card? Do we remember? It's exactly what the question was here. Am I going to remember, once it comes every day, how long does it take before I stop appreciating what a gift is? Do you remember when you first got here? First time you went on the roof. Do you remember that? First time you went on the roof. And you look at it and you are like, oh my gosh. Right? Has the oh my gosh changed a little bit? You know? You have um, certain gifts this year, but you have certain challenges. Because your whole year has been the Rover. So it's easy, after every day in the Rova, to take for granted that you're in the Rova. But imagine if you went back in time and you ran into your great-great-grandfather, right? Or your great-grandfather. And he's in the shtetl. You know what, he just got a Treblinka. He got out of Auschwitz. And you're talking to him, he says, so how's it going? He goes, oh man, I'm stuck in the old city every day. He'd look at you like you're out of your mind. You're living the life of manna from heaven. We don't appreciate it. So what does Laman on the Senu, according to the Rambam, right? It's, how do you choose to look at the world? Do you see the world the way it's meant to be seen? Okay? And I'll give you an even better example. Take a look at the story at the end of, 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 of the Parsha, right? What's the story at the end of the Parsha? And I will leave you to sort of, you can go through the parha and apply what we're saying here to every single story in this parha, But let's look at the end of the Parsha, right? So what happens at the end of the parasha? There's no water. So they say, "Give us water. We don't have water." Can you imagine? Hashem gave them months, not enough. They gotta have water, right? Now, on the one hand, they're right. Like you're in the desert, you need water. If you don't have water, you're thirsty. On the other hand. If Hashem split the sea, and Hashem brought ten plagues, and, and Hashem is turning, turning—I I, I mean, mana is coming from heaven already because that's the previous parak. You're worried about water. Like, you're worried about water. Koshbar will give you water. What were you worried about? It's—it's like—it's like I don't know. It's like—it's like coming in here and saying, "Avadi, is there going to be children? Because 'Cause going to be children." He says to you, "Dude, don't worry." It's going to be chillant. At this point of the year, if Ravadi says it's going to be chillant, he's the Iron Man of a I don't know if you figured that out yet. What Ravadi says just happens. Right? He's just one step below Kosh Baruch It's unbelievable. <laughs> he says it's going to be chult, it's going to be chillant. You don't have to doubt it. You didn't doubt it because Ravadi says it's going to be. Okay? So they're worried is it going to be water? Okay. So Hashem says, i Am Namaim V'Yal am Moshe. We all know the story, right? Go before the people. It's a strange line. Take the Talmud the, the elders. And your staff. Now what's he going to do? We all know this. What's he do? Why is he taking the staff? It's going to hit the rock, right? The same staff that you hit the... Let them remember that... With, that just like the Nile River, the God of Egypt, turns to blood, turns to death. If I say it's gonna be water, it's gonna be water. Right? And Moshe says, I'm gonna stand on a rock in Chorev. Why is it important that he's standing on a rock? And of course we know what happens, water comes. Now you and I know you can't hit a rock. Water can't come from a rock. Because when I look at a rock, a rock is anything but water. And the water is not a rock But Hashem says it all depends how you look at the world It all depends how you look at the world If you choose to see water from the rock There will be water from the rock Right So now this is interesting The Jewish people have a choice here Because water is going to come from the rock But the question is Where does the water come from Does it come because Moshe hits the rock Or does it come because Hashem says You'll have water so there's a little detail here that people miss. Moshe stands and hits the rock in which place? In the Chorev. Where is Chorev? Chorev is Harsinai. If you go back to the story of the Sneth, right, what does it say by the burning bush? It says, Elohim beginning of Perak Moshe comes to the mountain of God, right, by Chorev. Chorev is associated with Harsinai. That same Hare Elohim, the only other place in the Torah that that, that phrase is used. Is by Harsinai. So Horeb and Haralakim, same place. And the first Mephoshim say, Moshe goes to Horeb. And Bemet, Rifidim, happens right before Pashat Yitro, happens before Harsinai. Why does Moshe have to go to Horeb? They're in Rifidim. They have no water in Rifidim. So he goes to Chorev to bring them water. And the mentor says, you know, the river flows from Horeb and they have to see it coming, right? Because the Jewish people need to understand that water doesn't come from Moshe. Water doesn't come because you hit rocks. Water comes from chorev So why does Hashem have Moshe hit the rock? Because the Jewish people need to learn that they have to choose to see a different world. If we don't have the ability to choose how to see the world, right? If we're standing at Har Sinai and the experience is so overwhelming that we have no choice, then it's kafaleh markegim. It's like the mountains over us, like a, like a, like a. Like a barrel of wine, like we have no choice. Right? Parsha at is about learning to see the world as in our hands. How we choose to see the world is the world that we live in. Right? And that's why the parsha ends, interestingly enough, right? Sorry. like I'm going to destroy a Malik. Right? Mitachat Milchamala Hashem be Amalek. Hashem will destroy Amalek. Well, if Hashem is going to destroy Amalek, why isn't Amalek destroyed now? By the way, if you look in Parsha Dvarim, at the end of Parsha Kitaitse, which is where Hashem reminds the second generation, right before they go into Eretz Israel, about the war on Amalek, what does it say there? right? It says, et Asher Asalcha Amalek, Baderach, but it? Asher Korcha Baderach. Now what does that mean? The Amalekites that korcha bader. Anybody know what that means? Kuf resh kuf. Korcha. So there are two possibilities, yeah? Attacked. Nope, doesn't mean attacked. Like, forced us? Nope, doesn't mean forced us. Like occurred or happened? Okay, so one opinion is it's mikre, like vayikra, it's something that just happened, right? In other words, they just happened to cross you. So that's a crazy way to look, what do you mean they just happened to cross you? Right? What's the other way? The other way of understanding is a shirkha from the word ka, they cooled you down. You were so on fire, you were so enthusiastic, you you just the sea just split, miracles left and right, and then a Malik comes along and attacks you, and all of a sudden, it's not clear. What's the gematria of a malik? Same, right? They introduce doubt to the world. Do we see a mullach as part of Hashem's plan? In which case we don't have to worry, because it's part of Hashem's plan. Or do we see a Malik as just a coincidence? Right? We have that doubt. And we get to choose how we see the world. By the way, that verse, Hashem Korhabadeh, does not appear at the end of Rashalach. Why doesn't Hashem destroy a Malik there? Because a Malik exists so that we can have doubt. What is the value of doubt? When you have doubt, you have to make a decision. Now, it's true that in reality, Hashem makes all the decisions. But the fact that I don't see that so clearly allows me to feel that I'm making the decisions. What does the Gemara say? The only, we've spoken about this before. The only real choice that you have in this world is how you choose to see the world. If you see a world where Hashem is standing at Sinai, then you'll be constantly in the presence of Hashem. If you see a world in which a malek happens across your path, then you'll live in the world of Amalek. How does a Amalek come along in Parshat B'Shalach, right? They complain about the water, they're struggling, where is Hashem? Hayesh Hashem Is God really here? If the if, if water could be bitter, is God really here? What's the next verse, albeit with a parsha break? So the rabbis say, Hayesh Hashem Is God really in our mitzvah? That's when a Amalek comes. Doubt is what allows a Amalek in the door. Conviction is what pushes Amalek out the door. It's true that Hashem will destroy Amalek, but He's not destroying Amalek now, because we first need to destroy Amalek, not because Hashem can't. Because the value of our position in this world is that we choose to see a destroyed Amalek. Now, Amalek represents a lot of things. Amalek represents forces that are arrayed against us. You know. I mean, if you think about it, it would be easy to get really scared about what's going on in Iran. I mean, they're now, you know, producing uranium at 20%. Aviv Kohavi, the, the the chief of staff of the Israeli army, says that, you know, if we enter this Iran deal and Biden might do it, you know, so then it could be that the breakout goes to like two or three weeks. Do we have bunker busters? Will we be able to destroy Iran? That's pretty scary. You know, maybe we should all get on a plane and get out of here. Right? Or hard for me to imagine that after 2,000 years of dreaming, Hashem brought us all back and it be destroyed by Iran. You want to do the best thing to protect us against Iran? Learn well. Do chesed. Don't speak Lashon Hara. Live the dream. Live up to the responsibility of what a gift this man that we've been given is and Iran won't be able to touch us. That's what Hashem tells us. This parsha of B'Shalach Paro, it starts that Paro sends us out. It ends Milchamel Hashem B'Amalek. The transition from seeing Paro as deciding to let us go and recognizing that Hashem does battle with Amalek, that's why the Jewish people have to see Moshe's hands raised and down and realize this is not a natural war. Why are the Jewish people looking up on the mountain to see Moshe's hands raised so that they can be victorious against Amalek? Because, because this parsha allows us to change the way we look at the world, to change the way we behave the world. It's all about perspective. And I'll just finish this off with one last story. I read this amazing story. Little boy Thomas comes home from school and he tells his mother, who's always so happy to see him when he gets home. I believe he was uh, eight or nine, but I could be wrong. Tells his mother, this is in um, Port Huron, New York, New York State, in 18... 85, 1890, thereabouts. Tells his mother that uh, his teacher sent a letter home for her. So she gives him a kiss and a hug, and she takes the letter, and she opens it up. And it looks to him like maybe she has a tear in her eye. There's something about the letter. And she turns away from him, and she's looking out the window and holding the letter, and she turns back. She's got this huge smile, and she comes over, and she gives him a kiss, and she gives him a hug. And then she says, would you like to know what the teacher said? He says, yeah. So he reads her the letter. The letter says, your son is a genius. And our small school is no longer capable uh, of teaching him. He's an incredible young man. We recommend that you bring tutors to hire him because he has enormous potential. And she gives him a kiss. And from that day, she begins homeschooling him. Okay? Some 28 years later, his mother passes away. And he finds a, a box full of letters. And uh, he's going through them, it's his mother's letters. And he suddenly sees that letter that he remembers. She saved the letter. So he pulls out the letter, now he can read, now he's... So he pulls out the letter to read it, and he reads the following letter. Dear Mrs. Edison, your son is clearly mentally challenged. He's incapable of being in school, and we don't think it's good for the other children to be around him. So we're asking you to keep him at home and perhaps you can find ways to occupy him. That's the letter. He never knew that that's what it said. He thought he was a genius and his mother homeschooled him for over 20 years. And that's why he becomes Thomas Alva Edison, who was the undisputed greatest genius of an entire century. We are sitting in a room full of light because Thomas Alpha Edison didn't know he was mentally challenged. He thought he was a genius. How you look at the world, how you choose to communicate that, whether you tell the kala that her dress is horrible, like Beit Shammai, or you imagine that it cannot be that a kala isn't beautiful, right? We had six different children. I want to tell you the ems. Do you know why I wasn't one of the judges? Because I cannot imagine the Talmidim and a Raita make a Cholant and it would and it'd be anything but a hundred. How could you have a chont that isn't amazing? And I tasted four of the Cholants. Baruch Hashem, I couldn't have a fifth Cholant. Bi would Gasa. It was already Aser, Midor, Aisa, right? <laughs> they're all amazing. With naknikiot, without naknikiot, with meat, without meat. They're all amazing. You're all amazing. This is all amazing. Right? I don't know what's around the corner. On the one hand, there's over a million people in this country that have been vaccinated. They suggest by the, within three weeks it'll be two million people. It's unbelievable, right? We have 70 guys in yeshiva. In a few weeks, there'll only be five guys. And I'm guessing that by the end of next week, we'll be able to say that by the end of February, everybody will be double vaccinated. I have no idea what that means. And it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter. How do we look at this year? Do so we look at this year, we didn't get to have all the tiulim, and we didn't get to have all these out shabbos, and we're missing all this and that, and we can't go to town, and we can't see a friend, like it's, ah! You know? Or, we're going to finish Rambam Deir for the first time by Purim, Pesach. Never had that happen before, because we had no Ben money. We learned all through Sukkot. And we learned the week after Sukkot. And we learned in between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. We did so much learning, we're ahead of the game. You know? I want to tell you something. The energy that you have, the the camaraderie that you succeed in developing with all these barriers and plastics and everything else is remarkable. And I think part of that is because you're going through something together that's not a simple thing. It's only a question of how you look at it. So obviously we hope as Rath Hashem we'll pull the walls down. And we hope, and look, it could be that this whole year was designed so that you wouldn't get all sorts of things, so that you would realize, of course, everybody has to stay, stay Shonabet, Shonabet, right? But whatever will be, the Shalach, the Shalach is all about what's the world that we live in. Are we living in a world, you know, there's a tart that says, um, quotes a Gemara, that, that when the Jewish people went through Yamsuf, they didn't go all together through the sea. Each Shevet had its own path. Okay, and that's a whole discussion about sort of respecting individual perspectives and that differences are good. But there's one day that says, no, every Jew had his own path. Every Jew had his own path. So I saw an interesting question. Um, if every Jew has a path through the sea, then he has a wall. So if you have 600,000 Jews they are walking through Yam, so if everybody has a little path, the sea isn't split. It's just little paths. So Sifat says, ah, oh, you don't understand the sea doesn't have to split. When you really know that the sea doesn't exist, only Hashem exists, right? Then you walk through the sea, whether it's there or not. It makes no difference, right? It's all about how we choose to see the world. So, Hashem should bless us all, b'zorak Hashem. We're about to enter Olam We're about to enter, you know, Ma'in Olam a little glimpse of how the world could be. We have another Shabbat in Yerushalayim, in the old city. Get the Davan overlooking her a bite with each other. I hope you succeed in waking up after such amazing chillant, Bar Hashem. Mm-hmm. Hashem should bless us all with the most amazing Shabbat until next Shabbat, which is even better. That's